I think we should be much more humble about um, within the academic community about how we think about knowledge, but also outside the academic community as well, about how we kind of interact with others and respecting other people's knowledges, practical knowledges. Welcome to our esteemed guest uh, who featured on the on the uh, hit list of must-haves uh, in the last two bare minimum of the last episode, uh, where we talked about um, guests that we might want to bring onto the podcast uh, into the future. Um, so it's great to, to have Julian uh, North here with us. And I think first and foremost, I think it's important to, to position the fact that categorically, we are not the propaganda arm of Leeds Beckett University, given the volume of people that we've had uh, from the university on the podcast uh, so far. Um, but I think that's more reflective of the, uh, of the faculty that you guys have assembled there, uh, and not necessarily uh, the fact that we're trying to uh, peddle uh, people to go towards uh, that university moving forward. Um, but I, I think before I invite um, you on, Jay, uh, can I just echo what we, what we said at the weekend in terms of the fact that we really appreciate you taking the time to jump on with us today, especially given that you you woke up today feeling a bit poorly. So um, so kudos to you for just uh, digging in and, and uh, going ahead with the recording. Um, we each know you in, in some way, and for Laurie and I, uh, your work and our interactions have touched us and informed our practice as coach developers through what's been a, a fairly formative and transformative couple of years for us both. Um, but I think more importantly, we really enjoy your company as a, as a human being, uh, as a bloke. Um, so selfishly, it presents us the opportunity to share in your company, explore some of uh, your curiosities, some of your work, past, present and future. Uh, and of course, share some smiles and laughters along the way. So, um, laughters plural. Well, uh, my grammar's gone down the tubes since last time round as well. Um, so, with that, uh, please introduce yourself, Jay. Just give us a flavour of who you are, uh, what you're doing now, and um, how you've arrived at this point. Uh, well, yes. So, my name's Dr. Julian Knopf. I'm a reader in sport coaching uh, and the director of the research centre for sport coaching in the Carnegie School of Sport at Leeds Beckett University. Um, I've been with the university about 10 years now. Before that, I was head of director of research at Sports Coach UK um, for about 10 years. I worked for UK Sport, I worked for the Australian Institute of Sport. I worked outside sport in, um, in doing research in the university and working for an agency in entrepreneurship and social inclusion and labour markets. Um, I've been a researcher for about 30 years. Julian, to kick us off, is sport coaching a knowledge building community? Um, the short answer is yes. Yes, of course it is. Um, the long answer is, well, I think first of all, we need to ask ourselves what knowledge is before we can get some kind of purchase or some traction on that question. And I think sometimes, I don't know if you, you guys agree, but there is an inclination, a tendency to equate knowledge with um, the written text, um, with learning resources, with popular science and with research. So, but, but for me, I think it's much broader than this, um, which probably brings us to a closer everyday understanding of the term knowledge. So I did a bit of, um, in anticipation of us talking about knowledge, I did a bit of a background reading to, to, to support 
or thinking answers. I looked in the Oxford English Dictionary. Universities get um, access to really big versions of the Oxford English Dictionary. And I looked up knowledge and under the and just under the noun knowledge, not even the verb, there was 12,000 words and probably hundreds of different different definitions of what noun knowledge is. And, and loads and many, many, many more, um, you know, X to the power 10 words written in philosophical and scientific treatments. So it's like a very complicated idea what what knowledge is. Um, but at its most basic, um, this is kind of uh, based on my own thinking, readings and, and, and philosophers like uh, David Deutsch. At its most basic, I think knowledge is about information. And this information appears um, to be based on our experiences or something in the world. That's where we get this information from. It appears to have both an implicit, uh, tacit or unarticulated or unspoken dimension to it. And it also has an explicit, conscious, linguistically mediated dimension to it. It can be linked to something practical. So that's where it may be tacit. And it's also based in language. So and we use that language to ruminate when we're thinking with ourselves and have discussions with others. And it's part of the reading as well. So it's also held individually. It's held in groups, it's held in institutions and it's held in wider society. And an interesting um, part of it is that um, in its cultural forms and it's kind of like social cultural forms, it doesn't rely on individuals for its existence. It's held in artifacts, it's held in texts. I think this is quite an important point because it means that knowledge, we can think of knowledge as moving beyond just individual and interpersonal constructions. It becomes a structure in its own right. And that's really, really important for us as, 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 as a society, but also for sport coaching, because it gives us a knowledge base that that transfers not through individuals, but through books and readings that we can all learn and benefit from. So it's, um, I see I see knowledge as being quite a broad thing. We might ask um, at this stage, if we think of, of kind of knowledge being based on information, when does information become knowledge? What is the kind of thing that changes information into knowledge? Philosophers sometimes talk about the criteria for knowledge as being justified true beliefs. That's something you hear quite a lot. So the justification is typically based on the application of some kind of process or method or peer review. So if you think about anything that we do in life when we're when we're sharing ideas, it kind of gains knowledge through some kind of social authorization. So this brings in the idea as well, kind of if we think of knowledge being justified true beliefs, it brings in the idea that knowledge can be distinguished in some way from beliefs. And I think that's right. I think that's important. So it's we might have have a particular belief, um, but we might not or others might not consider that to be knowledge. That's quite important because sometimes we want to challenge beliefs with knowledge. But I still see that idea of just contrasting um, and knowledge and beliefs as being quite limiting in some way. 
so I, I tend to see I tend to look at it in, in two ways I, I kind of think that this information becomes knowledge if you can think of it as having two things a, a truth or truth value so there's something true about it it represents something out there in the world and or it's useful um, so is this information useful and that's really pretty important yeah, for coaching because coaching is a very practical activity so if the, the knowledge is useful then, that, then that's quite important so to summarize on the question of knowledge um, knowledge extends way beyond research it's practical implicit as well as textual and, exp and explicit it can be held by individuals groups and societies and for it to be called knowledge or not just information or beliefs it has to have some kind of truth value and or be useful uh, so i think your question was is sport coaching a knowledge building community and i've just spent a, a short while describing what i think knowledge is so the answer to the answer my answer to your question will be certainly uh, and sport coaching is certainly an information and be belief building community coaching looks very different now to what it did 100 years ago 50 years ago notably in the uk i would say 10 to 15 years ago so it certainly has a trajectory as coaching and our trajectories the act of coaching itself is about change it's about athlete change so it's not surprising that that coaching also changes. Every coaching interaction, every program, every project generates new information and cements our challenges, existing beliefs. Based on this broad definition I just mentioned, um, the development of information and beliefs is driven by coaches, coach developers, learning designers, sports administrators, uh, the wider education system, of course, including including the likes of Anna and myself in higher education. There's also an increasingly important role played by social media, um, with some coaches and coach developers and indeed academics becoming opinion leaders and even setting up their own podcasts, dare I say it. So a, a question we might ask then is like, um, is this information that's generated so it's generated up through all these different sources are these beliefs are, are these is this information is it, is it is it useful is it truthful or is it useful and for me that becomes a practical or an empirical question we actually need to go out and look to find out the answers to that question but it's difficult um it's a difficult uh, question to answer and people have had, had attempted it because it, it it's really quite a resource expen expensive question to answer i suspect if we had the time and resources to do this we would find many pockets of truth and usefulness but also other information and beliefs that are less truthful less useful and perhaps even quite damaging I don't uh, and, and I have to be clear, I don't single out any particular stakeholder. I, you know, I have a broad operate to a broad definition of knowledge, which is contributed to all these different stakeholder groups. Coaches, coach developers, you know, policy people, academics, and I think all of them have their good and bad moments. The good is not just the preserve of the coach or the academic. Um, you know, we all have our good and bad moments. I think from the information we we have available, we can make an informed guess. And I I personally tend to be uh, quite glass half full on this issue. 
uh, whilst not being complacent about the negatives. So um, we, we published a paper on professionalisation in 2019. And I think we argue quite strongly that in the UK over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a noticeable improvement in coaching. Um, we, we, I would argue, based on the evidence we've collected, improved practice, greater focus on the wants and needs of the athlete, more attention to pedagogy, andragogy, uh, greater attention to the relational and processional aspects of coaching, more awareness of where things can go wrong from an individual and social perspective. Um, I think there is a long way to go, but for me, it's really important to acknowledge the achievements of where we've got to. It's very easy, I think, to to start doing ourselves down as a, a sport coaching community. And if, you, if you're in the game of constantly uh, doing yourself down or underselling yourself, then you are very, very capable of being ignored. And coaching is something that shouldn't be ignored. It needs to actually find a way of, of selling itself. And so I think we all have a, a duty to coaching to, to try and show it in its best light whilst, whilst not neglecting the negative stuff. So yeah, um, that was a long, long way of uh, there was lots in there of, of um, kind of answering your question: is sport coaching a knowledge building community? But I think yeah, it definitely is, and there's lots to celebrate, but there's lots to work on. That was a wonderful day, thank you. And uh, <clears throat> the bit in advance of answering the question. I know that the that I certainly have appreciated and the listeners will as well. And I hadn't even considered, but the question itself um reflects upon um I guess a belief in me that it takes a community to build knowledge. And you spoke in your answer there that there is a a need for knowledge to be useful. Where does that responsibility lie in making knowledge useful? Yeah. Um, so, who has responsibility as knowledge builders? Um, well, to me, all the stakeholders involved in coaching, including all those I've mentioned, have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we just need to very, very quickly rid ourselves of the idea that knowledge generation is purely or mainly minimally a research or academic research driven process. Um, and I think this is a very important, that idea is a, a very important mistake and one which is quite hard to shake amongst the academic community and dare I say it, in some places in the practitioner community as well. Um, so, I mean, there are various people you could say who have who have responsibility um, for, for knowledge generation and we could look at it, um, you know, in sociological terms of between the individual and society or between the coach and the state, you know. So, what's the what's the role of of um, individual coaches or individual coach developers, or what's the role of, of 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 kind of government agencies like in 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 England and to some extent in the UK, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, as well as it might have a new name now, and in um, your own ministries and agencies up in Scotland. Um, so um, yeah, so. We have the state and we have coaches. I mean, I think I've been very, very lucky 
in the positions I've had, I was recruited in about 2003 to work at um, what is now UK Coaching, what was Sports Coach UK, as the head of research, was initially recruited as head of research. And we were given um, by government, it was um, basically um, a few stakeholders, including Sue Campbell, um, um, and, and others, Pauline Harrison, we made a really, really strong case for coaching to Labour government at the time and managed to get a £28 million investment, which was like, it's basically unheard of um, for coaching in any country around the world, as far as I can see. And that was um, an investment really, I suppose, broadly under the agenda of professionalisation, but it was for... Um, a community of 3,000, well, there was a, let's say, let's start again there, there was 3,000 community coaches, 45 coach development officers. So remember, this is in the mid-2000s, so the coach developer role was was around, was initiated in, in the um, early 2000s within this project. Um, there was also a new education system for coaching, which became the UKCC. And there was also a strand for research, which I was I was asked to manage. That was part of my job when I was at Sports Coach UK. So I was asked to kind of basically spend, lucky me, asked to spend that government money on, on research. And and that, that generated all kinds of, of new, new research, new knowledge. In it. Uh, we suddenly understand the size and shape of the, the, the kind of coaching workforce in the UK, something we hadn't seen before. So we... We knew that there were roughly over a million individuals who were saying they were coaches. We knew what percentage of those were men were women. We knew sort of broadly what qualifications levels were, there were at. That's really, really important information if you want to both make the case for coaching, but also understand where its weaknesses weaknesses are. We did, we commissioned um, uh, literature reviews around participant development, coach development, mentoring. We did all kinds of specific work as well. And in, and in some ways, you know, if I was to be ambitious, I would say I would suggest that that kind of money helped to pump prime research in a UK context. Higher education was still getting on with its own research, but there was a bit of a focus there from a policy point of view. And and then hopefully that research has, has, has had some legacy. Um, and now nowadays, um, Sport Scotland, UK Sport, UK Coaching still have research budgets for coaching and, and and still continue to commission I think the major governing bodies of football association would be cricket even the smaller governing bodies are commissioning sporting research and so in, in the UK as researchers I don't think we can complain um, we might feel like um, there isn't enough money to go around sometimes but um, compared to other countries you know there is there are dedicated uh, budgets for, for research and coaching the other side of it is um, kind of the coaches and the coach developers, the individuals. So this is an interesting one, really. So what, to what extent are these guys generating knowledge, generating new knowledge? Um, the way I like to think of it, and this is very crude, is that there is probably about, I think of a third, a third, a third, so about a third kind of a really actively interrogate their practice and um, and look outside of their practice and look to others. 
and they they look to research, do their own research and their thinking, and they're innovating, and I think they're they're generating knowledge. I think probably broadly is a third who who have got no interest in just doing what they've only do, always done. And then there probably is a third somewhere in the middle, and it depends what time of the, the day or the week it is, or what day in the week it is. I've got some um, some research that I could share with you um, from a sociologist, Margaret Archer, who talk, talks about um, individuals and their sort of it, it talks a little bit to knowledge generation capacities through their kind of reflexivity, their levels of their types of reflexivity. Is it useful to share that? Yeah, I just I just wondered, um, given given the, the, the freshness of, of what some of what you've just said, are there any questions that we want to lean into before we start to talk about reflexivity, um, and the, and this research and that? I guess there there was one question that I was really keen to ask, and it goes back to this Laurie's original question around us being a knowledge building community, and you talked perhaps about some of the actors within within that community around. Um, uh, knowledge creation or the influence of knowledge creation and I was really keen to press a little bit on on your point around opinion leaders um, uh, and them obviously becoming influencers within within the discourse yeah, and just because they they have influence um, it might be assumed they are presenting knowledge as something that as being true but when you scratch beneath the surface um, what if we find that that knowledge uh, has little in the way of truth or truth value but still uh, presents as being useful to coaches in context does that does that um, prevent it from being from being knowledge um, based on the definition that you that you offered us no um not i wouldn't say um i wouldn't say so derek I for me, there's actually probably quite a high level of correlation, um, though not a one-to-one -one correlation between truth and usefulness. And I, um, I think that's a problem that we have in our broader political system at the moment, is that there's that kind of dis practical, there's been a practical disconnect between what how people, the kind of knowledge that, or the kind of ideas that people use to inform their actions, what they think is useful and actual the truth of the matter. Um, but that's a that's a broader a broader issue. Um, to my mind, um, kind of the the idea of opinion farmers like you guys, for example, setting up a podcast and sharing and, and asking people to contribute and asking questions, and those questions are obviously come from a particular perspective that imply a set of ideas, for better or worse. Um, that's all useful because it's all part of. Um, a broader dialogue that we should be engaging with. And of course, all of our, all of these dialogues are open to critical scrutiny, but we shouldn't be closing down any discussions, in my opinion. Um, we should actually be finding ways to get more people sharing their ideas, their views, their stories, their narratives, their truths, their, their practical usefulnesses. And so that if you get them out in the open, we can talk about them and 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 make a collective and individual assessment of their strengths and weaknesses so um as far as i'm concerned you know this what you guys are doing is absolutely brilliant um it's because it's just helping to to generate that discussion that's a nice point i wonder if there's a, a 
kind of issue there about you know we are people that have set up our own podcast and we invite people that we know or some of them we don't know but that's something that I always kind of reflect on quite a lot like how can we get more different people that I perhaps don't know to, to come and share their views because they might challenge mine and they might come from a different well they will probably come from a different perspective so is that an issue that some people like we're lucky enough to have the time and the kind of energy to do this but others might not and so their views might not be heard and others we might not have that access to invite them to come and share their views so do you think there's an issue there yeah yeah it's i mean what is there's an issue of i guess of how much time you've got and who you choose to invite through your interest in your personal connection there's also an issue of how much people are prepared to put themselves out there and share. So it's not just a one way thing, is it? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, and, and some people, I think, make themselves more available than others. And and I, I suppose it, it also, it's also reflected in the way all the different communication mechanisms that are available to individual contributors to the debate. You know, we've got kind of um, discussions like this. We've got there's learning and development events. There are conferences, and there's a kind of and there's the written word, the published written word. And in, in through all those mediums, they all convey a um, almost a willingness to engage in debate or otherwise. So um, I think I think as as stakeholders in the sport coaching community as researchers we have to think about how how we state our case in all the different formats um we we do and um that we use and a, a, an issue for me i think that is a problem that, that kind of closes down a debate a little bit is is when a case is overstated um and i think there's quite a lot of that in in our, within our field, uh, the overstatement of a particular position. Not, it's not just a case of this is an argument I would like to make and here's my evidence, but it, it, it moves into the territory. I am right and you are wrong. And um, and I think that's I, I think we should be much more humble about um, within the academic community about how we think about knowledge, but also outside the academic community as well, about how we kind of interact with others and respecting other people's knowledge as practical knowledge as one of the <laughs> incidentally, one of the the um the big shocks in my professional career was that my first job was in a business school, uh, London Business School, worked there from ninety-two to ninety-seven. Spent the five years there writing research articles, what have you really been very very highly critical of government and this was my first job out at university and because that's what people in universities did we wrote critical reports of, of, of the government and then my next job after university was getting a job in what was in effect a government department and realizing that the world that i was being critical of was far more complicated and far more nuanced and um, and there was much um, there was a much higher degree of expertise, and nuance, and sophistication in decision making in that government department than I ever ever 
even a thought or gave uh, credit for when I was working in academia and I've never never moved away from that lesson. Thanks Jay and I, I think um, in that I think you give us a nice segue back into where your original thought was around reflexivity that um, I clearly derailed you by bringing you back into into <laughs> a question and, and in particular around how we consume knowledge. Um, I, I'll not shy away from the fact that I'm my head's buried in in Perry and and Schumer and and Whistler and Peterson at the moment, um, um, based on some things that I'm doing in the background. But I'm really keen to to just bring you back on track and 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 um, and explore that that uh, thread that you were going to pull on. Yeah, sure, no problems. Yeah, so I guess the the the, um, the Perrys and Entwistles are um, <laughs> the Perrys and the Entwistles talk about individuals and their relationship with knowledge um you know how how rigid their their thinking is in relation to particular ideas beliefs information knowledge whatever you want to look on it and how as they as they mature or evolve move from the different stages they move to a more uh, relativist position is that what they call it but i just i'm not sure i'm that comfortable with that language i see that as i just see that the practitioner is moving to a position where they're more comfortable with de dealing with different knowledge types bases around a similar issue. I'm not sure relativist is the is it would be the language I would use, but then then who am I to question the work of Barry and Entwistle? Um, I'm liking I'm liking reasoning in, in terms of the, in terms of the work and just the the ability to reason between alternatives. I think is is a more important way of framing that work rather than just embedding ourselves in in that language of being relative uh, be, of relativism or being committed in relativism i think being able to have uh, building the processes of being able to reason between alternatives and being able to reason full stop uh, i think should be our aspirations of the coaches that we're working with in in terms of uh, consuming knowledge and there is uh, there is a, a plethora of knowledge out there for them to consume and it's the ability to discern between uh, different knowledges yeah, uh, to inform a, a personal and reasoned perspective, I think is more important than getting caught up in relativism more broadly. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I yeah, absolutely, Derek. And not least because as well, I think the word, the term relativism takes you into some um, interesting philosophical territory. Um, and so it's just, yeah, I think for me, that's just the the, the, the problem with it. But I, I would agree, you know, um, about in, in your interpretation. So that, that's the psychologists, the, the, the Perrys and the Entwistles and so on. Um, I was just going to talk about um, uh, the work of Margaret Archer. And if you remember, we were talking about uh, uh, kind of where does the responsibility lie for knowledge generation? And I talked about the kind of the state based stuff, uh, government based stuff. And then I started talking about kind of coaches as knowledge generators and that. And I introduced my kind of um, three crude, you know, my three three thirds crude distinction. Um, but I think it's some interesting work from Margaret Arch, and she, she her her project, if you like, is to try and find like, kind of like the connection between individuals, individual coaches, and social structure. So that might be kind of um, groups of coaches, or communities of coaches, or researchers, or you know, kind of the broader social structure. She focuses a lot in her in her thinking on on this idea of the internal conversation. So that's really it's just another way of saying self talk. So that's a, that's a little conversation that we have in our heads when 
And as we're all having now, as we negotiate our way through this discussion, kind of talking to ourselves and we're trying to find a way to articulate what we think we would like to, uh, questions we'd like to pursue or would like what, what we to dwell on and what's what's kind of uh, feasible within the context of this podcast. So that's a, a, a project. But she's done some research with um, with kind of members of the of the English public, um, and 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 she she's identified a, a number of what she calls reflexive types. So the and these reflexive types I think are quite interesting for thinking about how we might think of coaches as knowledge generators. So she says that about three out of ten people are what she calls autonomous reflexives. What that means is, and I am really seriously paraphrasing here, I dread the idea that Margaret actually would ever be listening to this, which is about, about as likely as as, uh, as um, me flying to Pluto in the next half an hour. Um, so these autonomous reflexives, um, they have a great deal of self-belief in their own experience and narratives. And they don't tend to think or consult much beyond themselves. So I think we can all recognise those kind of people. Now, it's, it's it's likely if you are an autonomous reflective that you're probably not thinking too much about knowledge generation. You're probably just thinking more about your own knowledge reinforcement. She said that just less than a quarter of what she calls communicative reflexives. These are individuals who draw their ideas from tradition or the community and what they do is try to seek affirmation from from the tradition or from community about their ideas so they're always looking for affirmation in their discussions in their conversations and I think again we would all recognize people who we who we've come across coaches and we've come across who are like that faith you know they coach on, on, on tradition Probably the, the, the third one is a little, maybe a little bit upsetting. She reckons about a quarter of people what is what she calls fractured reflexives. And these are the somewhat distressed and disorientated. They have trouble in their lives, basically. They're so distressed by what's going on in their lives that they can't really engage in a reflexive conversation. So they're not really much used for generating new knowledge either. And then she says that finally about a quarter of people are what she calls meta-reflexives. And these are the questioners. These are the people who have a critical mindset. They, these are the, the researchers, the innovators. Um, so it's crude. Look, it's, it's like moving some research from sociology and kind of dumping it on sport coaching. You have to be really, really careful about that. But, you know, I, I actually would say that about a quarter of us, of people have a strong inclination to be the serious knowledge questioners and with that I guess the knowledge generators so that that but that feels low to me and and we did we actually did some we did some work um on this uh, which isn't published sadly like a lot of the research I've done um, but we did some research on reflexive types in coaching we found actually a much higher proportion of meta reflexive the kind of the questioners and the innovators in coaching but it still wasn't above 50 percent. You know, and we've, we've done about three or four different data collection attempts. So I think we're, we're faced with a situation in terms of where, you know, again, going back to the original question, where does responsibility lie for knowledge generation? We've got all these different stakeholders, but 
we have this situation with coaching where we've probably got some who are being you know highly critical highly questioning are generating new knowledge but quite a lot that aren't and they're doing it for reasons of dare i say self-importance or because they're always they're always doing what they've always done and that's their their if you like um they're probably i hope you would agree that's where an issue lies so if you can sort of try and start to group people obviously i, I assume that people can move between these groups as well um and we might be able to help people sort of move from group to group or you might be yeah one type of might have one type of approach to one type of situation and maybe another type of approach to another situation i don't know but i had, I had a question about um the the tendency to sort of label people working in sport coaching as either academics or practitioners or even worse the academics which i hate <laughs> um i think it should be academicianer really um so do you think that that's done in a similar way to sort of help us judge the quality or the usefulness of the information that's generated or like is it done to help sort of say oh you're an academic you should create be creating new knowledge um or you're a, you're a practitioner, you should be creating new useful kind of useful knowledge, practical knowledge. Um, given you've got such a varied research background, what, what are your thoughts on that? And can you link to sort of ideas? Um, yeah, so the first point, I just need to make a bit of a clarification. Um, so I think I don't think Archer would say that. That um, you are in one of those four boxes. I think she would say that all of those reflective types are um, um, exist in all people. We all have our fractured moments, for example. But it's just that some are more dominant in one of those areas than others. And I think that that's more of a realistic picture, isn't it? I think. And it also, I think, I mean, one of the things about CR and, Ar and Archer's work is that it really emphasises the kind of the temporal of um, the changing nature of society and individuals so of course you know there must be scope for for individuals and societies to change so and that presumably means that if we work hard enough we can convince that convince those in particular reflective types to to think in different ways you know through the learning and education process you know absolutely um in terms of the uh um issue about kind of academic and th practical thinking is something that I, it just doesn't concern me at all um that 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 issue i don't i don't know i just maybe i think i think it does cause a lot of problems um but i think my view is that as we want to encourage uh, practitioners to to use the tools of academia to explore you know the tools and the concepts that come through academic and research and academic writing and research to, to explore their thinking but also as researchers we need to uh, immerse ourselves more in uh, practical thinking and practical problems and practical issues so i if you're in an as a researcher if you if you're working in an applied disciplinary area which is sport coaching research then like surely the first job is to sort of immerse yourself 
in the practical context to try and understand that um try and understand um the languages and how it works and the things that everyone's seeing and before you start before you start to develop concepts and well, we are we all have our jobs to do of course our day jobs and we get um, i get employed by a university and you know and, and coaches are kind of employed to coach and, and so we all kind of live in different worlds and different spaces but you know it's i think that it's a, a responsibility of particularly for academics to to move closer to practice such that these things aren't even aren't even an issue coaches it's just from from an as a, speaking as a researcher now i am a coach as well but as speaking as a researcher we just we we want we want them to come in and use research in but not we don't want them to use research in a way that's overbearing in a way that kind of tramples all over their ideas or their practices but actually just helps them to explore uh, what they're thinking or maybe challenge their thinking but not in a destructive way just in a, a way that's kind of um positive and 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 it's not just about i think about the kind of um the nature of the debate or the nature of the difference between practical and academic thinking. I think there's something there about the tone of the discussion, how the discussion takes place. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, it's it's down to down to all the different stakeholder groups, really, to to come to the conclusion that there's nothing to be gained by um, um, you know, pulling up the drawbridge. And dressing our in our different areas, you know, in protecting our areas politically, or um, uh, dressing up our ideas in unduly complex language, or just mm -hmm. making our worlds generally impenetrable to others. I have a, a follow-up question on language, but I, I know Derek's got one, and I'm going to jump to you, so I'm not going to ask a question, but I just want to make an observation in that. I know that you talk about in your book um, one of the important features of your ERE model, your embedded relational emergent model being that for coaches and coach developers, it, it um, offers a recognisable picture of coaching practice and that it can be accessible. And that's something that I can really relate to in your work and that, you know, um, with other sports recently, you know, I've been able to move around that and, and discuss it in a way that I think has created a really, um, and maybe I've dumbed it down and watered it down far too much, but it just feels accessible. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Derek, you've got a question. Yeah, can I talk to that <laughs> yeah, a little bit? Right. Please yeah. do. Yeah. So there was, um, this is going back a little bit now, as I said to you before we started, you know, this, this work was done in 2015-16 the main, main body of the writing anyway but I was in a in a situation there where I was trying to I came from a very you know I came from a practical or a policy or practitioner background my work at UK coaching um, but I was trying in doing trying to do that job I was trying to engage in academic with the academic research and I wasn't a coach before in 2003 I'd done a, a bit of coaching um, and I didn't I hadn't read a single coaching article before then. I'd worked in a sports background. I'd done high performance and other bits and bobs, but I hadn't. I coaching was all very new to me. Um, so I looked at I looked at the literature in the mid two thousands, and I saw um, 
researchers from different perspectives apparently saying very different things about the same thing that was spark coaching and my job my background my my undergrad, undergraduate and, and, and previous postgraduate degrees in economics <laughs> nothing to do with sport so i had no affiliation to any particular sports discipline all i had to do was make sure that that then try and generate a knowledge base it was helpful and useful for coaching so so the so from that very sort of practical set of questions came well how do we find an approach that we can use to synthesize the work across the disciplines from psychology from sociology so that takes you then into the research base but there's no way to answer that problem by staying at the disciplinary level you have to find a solution above that level and that takes you into the realm of philosophy um so philosophy then becomes particularly critical realism if you start reading it becomes actually um you know it's actually very demanding and um very abstract and and the 2017 work a lot a lot of it was in quite in that philosophical space because it was i was trying to do a, what i thought was an important job for the research community or for a research base shall we say for under, underpinning these more practical concerns but in doing that kind of more philosophical work i was hoping that the net result of it would be an approach that gave us the tools to provide this more kind of a nuanced and realistic understanding of what sport coaching was and that that so the the tools that jump out of that if you like without the philosophy of this idea of coaching being goal orientated um it being dependent on the actions um the, the strategies the the reasons reflections and resources of the stakeholders involved all the stakeholders the coaches the athletes everyone involved and they were the tools and I'd, i challenge anybody to think about any task and not be able to break it down through those broad concepts um but it, it kind of and so it did the job two ways for me it, it, it showed it did in terms of reflecting back on the research it provided a way of uh, th those concepts provided a way of of providing a synthesis between say behavioral and cognitive approaches behavioral emphasizing the actions the cognitive approaches emphasizing the resources and the reasoning socio-cultural perspectives emphasizing um, all kinds of different things practice which is action or the kind of the resources of the embeddedness of coaching so the, the, the t so it did a job that way in terms of trying to kind of uh, produce a, a synthetic approach to research but hopefully the other way provided some basic tools for coaches to think about their practice or for researchers to think about coaches when they're thinking about practice or coach developers or so on and it doesn't really matter how how you how in in what way you use those tools i think that um or the the level at which you interrogate them i think it's just what i would say is it's just important to bear in mind that they are all important to uh, from, from the position i argue from they're all important to understand practice and so if you're talking about coaches actions you've always got to think well what are they trying to achieve what goals are they trying to achieve and then how are they thinking about it and what kind of strategies are they bringing to bear and how are those strategies influenced by other people or if you're thinking about um starting with the coach's goals how deliverable are they in a particular context or 
does does the coach have the resources to deliver against those goals or are other stakeholders in a position to deliver against those goals so it doesn't matter about the entry point or the depth with which you use them it's just that these things are always there and they're just available for that kind of a for that uh, analytical process or or to ha or the basis of the discussion thank you jay derek you've got a question yeah, yeah, I do, and it's a bit half baked. So just forgive me if it's um, if it comes through uh, relatively incoherent, but please take it in the spirit in which it's intended. Um, so I, I want to go back to the reflexivity um, part that, that you spoke about just recently, um, Jane, and um, in the spirit of recognising some of the problems that exist within the real world of sport coaching. Um, and look, I, I work in sport coach education policy for, for a national agency and I work with um, our system to try and evolve coach education and, and one, of, one of the problems I see in coach education is that knowledge is done to coaches and not with coaches um, and, I, and I, I'm really curious as to um, the degree to which that, that meta reflexivity is then suppressed within the context of those educational environments and we wonder um, why at times within the discourse we're overly critical of coaches for not being critical enough about how they consume knowledge so uh, i wonder have you thought about that much um given given you know we're working size and scale within coach education we're working through more concentrated activities within coach development or coach mentoring but, but i still wonder to to quote um leader in soic um, do we understand the concealed complexities within that work in and of itself around um harnessing or fostering reflexivity versus, versus people who operate with self-interest who only serve to suppress that reflexivity in and of itself. Fairly loaded question, I appreciate but I'm keen to understand your thoughts on it. So there's quite a lot of stuff in there, Derek, and you might have to remind me uh, of some of the components. I'll, 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 I'll try and uh, chip away at those. So that for me, I think Again, maybe I've just got like an unduly optimistic viewpoint on some of these issues. But um, I see coach education or coach development changing loads over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure that maybe, you, you, I mean, I totally respect your experiences, Derek, on this one. And you're in a better position probably now on the night to comment on this. But I don't see um, coach education and, and development opportunities being done to coaches as much as they used to be. I see them actually, I see the learning and development experiences being much more with and in, in, the, in the, the people I've been working with, uh, there's much more in situ based authentic learning. The assessment mechanisms tend to be more project based even at lower levels, like level ones and level twos, um, the, the, there are different, there's a broader range of knowledge content within the curriculum. It's not just kind of rules and sports technique and, and tactical considerations. You know, there's there's all the different knowledge bases, athlete development, there's, come, you know, people are asked to reflect on themselves and their social context. They're asked to explore increasingly the social relational dynamics of their coaching or coach development practices so 
look, I'm sure there's loads of work to do, but I, th- I think that for me, the um, the you know, that there's been a lot of good work done, and we should recognise that and build on it. Um, and not least you guys, of course, who uh, who have just come off a coach development program, Laurie and Derek, that was was about as kind of um, working with people as you could possibly possibly get. Like a majority of the, the the knowledge generated on that course seemed to be generated just by yourselves, the participants, and your interaction with your experiences. Um, the other one was about you. Then you then I think you move to actually what chance do we have as developers and educational uh, specialists working with with the different types of people? And I really genuinely don't know the answer to to this one, uh, Derek. I I don't know. I, I maybe I have a reflection on it. Before 2016, I'm kind of nailing my political colours to the mast a little bit here. I had a much more kind of optimistic view on, uh, even more optimistic view on the kind of nature of society and individuals within within them. But the more, I think, um, you know, the way that people reflected on really, really important decisions about the way that we run our, you know, decisions about our society and how it's how it's run, maybe a little bit more pessimistic about how people construct their identities, their beliefs about the world. And actually, they're probably a little bit more difficult to change than I thought they were originally. But how what you do about those sort of people and how you you manage that, I'm not sure. I mean, I think from the wider literature outside sport coaching, because a lot of people are talking this now, how can we how can we generate a discussion between people who are so polarised in their social and political views? And there's a lot of writers who are writing about this at the moment. I do. I'm very, you know, I kind of read quite a lot of it. It's really interesting with this that sort of stuff. And it always just comes down to this, to this idea of just setting up a discussion at which kind of you allow people to express their views. And and you hear what they're saying, and then once you've, it's like Bob's Bob Muir's saying, you know, you listen first, listen to understand first, and then once you understand someone's view, then you're hopefully in a position where you can build up trust, where you can seek to under, to influence them. So, and hopefully that you one hopes, and though you, though it's easy to be pessimistic, that that cuts across eventually uh, things like political interest. You know, and I think you talked about self-interested people. And if the discussion goes on long enough, um, that the, the people can see a different perspective, can you can see, and that people can see that there is a different way of doing things, and that that by them changing, that they can um, improve not only their own lives but the lives of others. Yeah, I have a question following that. If it's okay, Derek and Anna, we. I guess around that idea of seeking to understand first and the importance of dialogue and uh, we shared some questions in advance of this that we we discussed we might explore together and there was one yesterday that I realised how annoyed I was that I hadn't um, communicated it with you because 
although this is the first time the four of us have come together, I think if I reflect back, either in twos or threes, language has come up quite often in the various discussions that we've had. Um, and it's something I've reflected on a lot over the last couple of years because I've always, I think, been someone who's been really willing and interested and curious to ask questions. And I notice myself in, in work being less and less willing to do it. Um, and so, and this is very much the content of language rather than how it's how it's said. But, um, it, you know, if, uh, where am I going with this? Like, like, like it can create boundaries, right? And some of those boundaries can be really helpful and some of them less so. So if you're really listening from a place of uh, curiosity and appreciation uh, and you're willing to, uh, to ask questions and better understand what someone's saying, then that's brilliant. It can also be create unhelpful boundaries and those boundaries will be different from person to person. But my experience would suggest that language can often be used as currency um, and I, I shared a quote with Derek re recently by a philosopher, what's his name, um, Wittgenstein, and it says, uh, what, what is it? Um, you cannot enter any world for which you do not have the language. And yeah. I wondered, <laughs> I wondered, Julian, if you could just share some of your experience in sport uh, through that quote and, and tell us tell us your thoughts. Um. Yeah, yeah, I think um, it's, I think you're absolutely right. I think that each of the stakeholder groups we've talked about and, and, and within and kind of smaller groups within those stakeholder groups have their own languages that they use to describe what they're thinking and what they're doing. And, and that extends probably, probably from quite colourful language in some sporting contexts you've been in some changing rooms uh, or out on the pitch to like very sophisticated intellectual language in amongst some members of academia and and um and our coach development community and um you know when i'm i'm guilty of that myself i have my moments you know like uh i did another podcast on the book um a few years or so ago i can't remember when it was now and the opening question was um I, I've tried to read your books, but it's it's full of lots of big words that I didn't understand. I mean, so like, a, and I, 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 my response was, I tried to make it as easy to understand as I as, as I could, but um, but that doesn't mean to say that you know um, it still wasn't it, it's still not difficult to understand. I think that I think we can understand each other, um, and I think we have a, a, a responsibility to make ourselves understood an active responsibility to make ourselves understood and so that's part of the that kind of discussion that i was talking about um so if someone we have this, this really really crazy situation where if someone is using quite complicated or unknown language or jargon we sort of feel personally intimidated that we don't know that language or jargon and it's like almost like it's an admission of weakness um um, are seen as too great a disru disruption to ask for a clarification but I think that's really a, a, a really big problem um, both on the part of the kind of like the person who's listening to someone speak and trying to decipher what they're saying but also I think the speaker as well has got a real responsibility to make themselves understood and look 
I don't know whether I'm good or bad at this, to be honest. Um, I have no idea, but that's what that would be something, an aspiration I would set myself, and I think that's what other, other others should do. And well, I've been in many a context in, in coaching and in academia where you know it's it's become the language has become a real problem. So I, 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 I'm with Wittgenstein in many ways. I'm funnily enough, I'm just reading uh, philosophical investigations, which is where that idea comes from at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's actually a lot easier to read than I thought it was. It would be, um, which is but, great. But it's, um, but I don't, I don't, I don't see um, that uh, Wittgenstein's language games are quite so impenetrable or incommensurable as as, mm-hmm. as he would as he would suggest. And that, as you know, fully enough, that has all kinds of implications for what we think knowledge is and actually what we think learning and development is. Yeah, can I, can I, I I'm going to cut in here because I think, uh, I'm not cutting in, you have finished, uh, but <laughs> I think one of the main reasons I really, Derek and I wanted you on the podcast is that I have, my experience with you is that you have been in, incredibly humble and willing and welcome questions. Uh, that is the thing that I, 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 I like most about you, Julian, and and it's certainly reflected in the environment in which I've grown up. And Derek, I'll share this silly story that you can cut if you're very welcome to. Um, but I am. My dad was a virologist all his life and, and a researcher. And right at the start of the pandemic, he said, um, you know, that all these kids and families are now going through something that they know nothing about. And he started this four week virology 101 course where he, you know, played all these games and built all these models and essentially put on this course for families and children to allow them the opportunity to try and understand and make sense of what they were going through so you had you know three-year-old kids saying you know what's this and then you know mothers and fathers and grannies and grandpas just able to ask and understand what it is that they're they're experiencing and what all these words that are being used on the television actually mean and I think that is one of that yeah the thing that we advocate most on this podcast mm-hmm. or I certainly do I'll stop talking. Thank you, Julian. <laughs> Seeing Howard in the uh, in the pirate hat uh, on one of the sessions was uh, was one of the highlights of of my of my lockdown. So I recognise, Julian, that your your throat's a little bit um, you're coughing a little bit more than you were at the start, um, and uh, uh, I don't necessarily want to rip the arse out of it. I think we got quite a lot, um, but I wonder if there's anything that we want to do in summary or to summarise, um, or if there's any. Um, quickfire questions, Anna or Laurie wanted to chuck at you before before we go. Um, then uh, that would be uh, that'd be great. Uh, you, you, okay. I find myself in a position, Derek, where you've kind of like um, um, activated me quite significantly in relation to some of these questions now. And there's, there, there are some things that like uh, I would be quite happy to explore further. Yeah, I think one of the things that's um, that's kind of just links to one of the, to a few of the themes that you've mentioned maybe is the final bit of the, the the jigsaw for this for this session is is understanding um knowledge through participation or knowledge through exposure to cultural resources like research or learning materials so i think that's something we have touched on at various points but it kind of and you and it links as well to to Laurie's point about Wittgenstein and whether you know we, we 
whether we're just all stuck in our own language games or whether we can share language. And it ties in with your point, Derek, about his knowledge, his, you know, his, his coach education done to coaches or with coaches. So they all kind of relate to each other, I think. Um, and I think it's one of those things with sport coaching where we have to be careful that we, uh, again, that we don't throw the baby out of the bathwater. So we've come from a, a coach development and education system that really put knowledge and, you know, in, to a degree, competency front and centre, measured competencies front and centre around particular narrow view of what knowledge and competency was. And that was uh, was was criticised uh, sometimes appropriately, sometimes inappropriately across the sport coaching literature. But the the kind of the the, the disciplinary response to that kind of behavioural and cognitive solution was that all knowledge must be generated through participation in context and interrogation, personal or group interrogation of that that personal and contextual knowledge. But I think that's a dangerous, that's really dangerous as well, because what are you interrogating it with? So there's, for me, there's always a really um, important balance between letting people experience things and learn for themselves and learn through their discussions with others and then giving people tools to help them to unpack that experience. So there's a bit of both, in other words. So we can, it's all right to share some content. It's okay to do a PowerPoint presentation. That's fine. The issue is, is when do you do it? And and that's, I think that's the thing that we, we really struggle with. And that's the real um, problem for learning designers is when, when do you find that moment where you're allowing participants um, on any particular program or course to learn from their experiences, learn through their self-generated discussions? And when do you bring in tools to help them to actually make sense of that or to critically challenge that? And it's an issue of timing, not if if you do that um but it, yeah i just i thought that was quite an important point to make and so, there's another side of this as well like which i think is quite important for me anyway which is in this in this in the rush to to kind of get rid ourselves of kind of the cultural knowledge that comes through research popular science and stuff like that well, the, the irony isn't lost that the, the, the kind of the, it's taking written research papers to make the case that written research papers shouldn't really shouldn't be part of the learning and development experience. But there's also a broader point of Bennett, again, which comes down to kind of how we learn to talk to each other. We have kind of like quite a lot of I think lots of really, really able practitioners, really high quality practitioners. Um, who because have developed up a lot of tacit skills, so they really know what they're doing in context, but they don't have the the language or the concepts to share their good practice with other people. So research, I mean, what research is good at, it's not necessarily good at um, telling people what to do. It's not never ahead of practice in my view. It's always kind of. It always comes maybe a few steps behind the most innovative innovative of practice, but it provides a tool, a set of concepts of ideas so we can explain that and have conversations with each other. 
And it's those tools, those ideas, those concepts, the language that comes with it that enables us to have those discussions, to have a, a broader discussions about our own development, about our uh, stage in the pathways development, about our sports development, about the development of coaching generally. So if we're going to if we're going to bring coaches together so they can represent themselves better, so they, they can show to others learn um, their value, they need that common language to do that. And that common language generally comes through, well, it might come from a professional body or it might come to a research. So it's, it's important that we don't just use research to say that we shouldn't use research. And we should we we should use research also to build up um, concepts and tools to help people think through um, what they already know to be familiar. And so they can have a conversation with each other. But it's just when you do that. And what about what about the athletes as well, Julian, because of course, athlete experience is a not a product of but a big part of coaching practice and intentions of governing bodies etc etc and therefore that would require athletes to be able to articulate their experiences that they're having and that in itself is a skill that if you are a developing athlete you might not be able to do um, and even the time and availability in in lives of athletes can probably be hard to access. Would you include them in, in, in what you've just said? Um, uh, as, as a stakeholder group, should athletes be involved in a discussion about wider discussion about coaching? Yeah, I think that absolutely. Um, but every, every stakeholder group will kind of contribute in their own particular way. Um, and when you're working with your athletes as a coach, of course, you you find the language that's appropriate to the athletes. And that, that you know, and, and when I'm working my, with my 10 year olds, I'll use a particular language. When I'm working with coaches on our MSC, I'll lose it, use another language. Or with our D-Prof students, use another language, you know, you adjust. But you know, there's always that, that kind of um, duty to, or that responsibility, should I say, to to make yourself understood as best you can <laughs> i'm not sure sometimes how, how good i am at that but i, I give it a go <laughs> this speaks to this notion of coherence though because you, you might you might be saying the same thing in different ways to different populations but they are connected somehow whether you're saying them to the 10 year old uh, to the undergrad uh, or the mse or the prof doc and it kind of links to what andy abrahams was saying when he was on ontology and epistemology that, you know, he wouldn't necessarily put um, put certain papers in front of first year students. But then again, he might sometimes just to um, create a little bit of disjuncture to make them realize that they're not quite at that at that level yet. So I, I suppose it's the placement of language and the intentionality behind why you say certain things um, a to create disjuncture, but 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 I suppose also to create a degree of relatedness and connectedness with the people that you're working with. So it can be used in, in different ways with different degrees of sophistication on the proviso that you're aware of what it is that you're doing, I imagine, Jay. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think it just becomes a, a judgment call. But I mean, ideally, you want you want everyone speaking as, 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 as close to a common language as possible, I would have thought, if, if nothing else. 
for me, I think the big issue for coaching is just finding that collective voice so it can represent itself to the right stakeholders. The stakeholders who have got political power or, in other words, those who've got the money, because what coaching needs is money. We need, we've got lots of, for me, we've got lots of brilliant ideas about coaching among across all the different stakeholders. We've got lots of knowledge. The idea that we have no, no people often say in research papers, we don't know anything about coaching. We know loads. <laughs> we know loads about all the uh, um, coaching process and practice, about its social, relational component, about its processual components, about athlete development, about all the ologies. We've got loads of information to work with, um, in my opinion. But what we what we don't have is like um, the, the systems um, um, to actually help people to benefit from all that knowledge. And that requires. Requires um, resources and why hasn't Monday, why hasn't coaching got resources? It's because it's not found a way of representing itself, of, of showing how valuable it is to the people who, who who sign the checks, which is the government and civic society, you know, me and you as parents are, people who pay for tennis lessons or football lessons are. So I think that's really, really, for me, a really, really important um, part of understanding about, understanding how we push coaching forward is, is, is accessing resources to do good work through showing the value of coaching through and we have to show the value of, of coaching by having a, a reasonably common voice. Sadly I think it's more obvious to wider sort of wider public how bad coaching can be just because of recent kind of scandals in youth football, gymnastics etc. I suppose that was my thoughts on it. Like when you speak to people that aren't from coaching about coaching you Get, they don't really understand, I, I feel, and I, I get that. I feel like I speak to them about like coaching or what I do, my research, and I don't think really people really get it or why I struggle to get across my thoughts on why it's why I care about it. <laughs> but yeah, I wonder if that might start to change now that people know the kind of negative side of it, which is terrible. I don't know. That's yeah, kind no. of a, <laughs> what I was thinking while you were speaking there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, but that you could argue that those um, those those problematic moments in coaching have always been there and probably were there more historically. It's just that there is there are more kind of uh, tools, the media now to get the bad news to the front line. And we have and the way that media is structured, it, it always focuses on the bad news story and the controversy rather than the good news. So that just makes our job as as kind of like as members of this broader coaching family even harder, I guess. But that shouldn't stop us from trying. Mm. But I, I think I'm, I'm, I, is it Stephen Pinker who wrote the book Better Angels of Our Nature? But the idea there is that um, that basically society has evolved, you know, progressively evolved to be better and better, and there's less violence and there's more conversation over time. And I think that coaching has got better and better and better over time and it, you know it has like anything it has it's, it's up and down moments has its periods of acceleration and de-acceleration de or whatever deceleration but it, I think generally the trajectory is upwards but so it's you know it's just a message that needs to be sold and doubled down on
So I guess, I guess, and we we've come to a, a natural point where, um, where we've got time constraints of Anna going off to yoga, and we've got Julian wanting to take care of his health, uh, and uh, IT issues with Laurie. I think the the universe is telling us it's time to wrap up. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, uh, thank you so much for for giving us um, the time today. Julian and I recognise how much investment you put into preparing for for um, for this episode, and your diligence is um, is incredibly uh, valued and appreciated. And I think it's created uh, here's this word a product and a platform for for people to gain insight into into how you think and what you think about sport coaching. Um, and I'm quite excited um, in sharing that with. With whoever cares to, to listen to the episode. Lauriana, do you want to say anything just in, in parting? I enjoyed the positivity um, and I enjoyed hearing about Wittgenstein because, um, yeah, as I posted in the chat, um, he's buried in Cambridge. I just came across the, the graveyard where he's buried. I think and, yeah. Um, yeah, it's inspired me to maybe follow up on um, reading more about some of his ideas. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed the, the, I wrote down humility and kind of um, put a little Clyde around it on my, on my notebook. So I think there's lots of interesting ideas that we can uh, mull over and that will help us in the future. Yeah, and that just leaves me to thank you, Julian, for your time, for coming on to the podcast. Although I think I, well over two years now, you kept saying to me, Julian's too formal. So I'll say thank you, Jay, for coming on to the podcast. We haven't explicitly referenced the book and I know that um, Jay will almost certainly cringe as I do this, but I'm going to anyway because uh, his his book, Sport Coaching Research and Practice, uh, Ontology, Interdisciplinarity and Critical Realism is uh, available online for many booksellers and it has been on my shelf now for a couple of years. I genuinely continue to, to look back into it and I would recommend it to anyone that's interested. 